As we make our way into Luke 10, it becomes really clear, really quickly, that this passage has a lot to say, not just about the mission of spreading Jesus' kingdom, not just that, but even the global and the cross-cultural ramifications of this mission that, that He's given us. In other words, this morning's passage, it's it's the kind of passage that you would expect to hear a cross-cultural missionary preach on a Sunday morning, especially an aspiring missionary who's planning to go to Eastern Europe maybe sometime soon. But in all seriousness, I want to be candid with you and tell you that it really is actually just the Lord's providence that this passage is before us in such close proximity to the announcement that our family made just a few weeks ago. So please don't think that every time you see me coming up to the pulpit, you're going to hear another commercial for global missions. Um, that's, not, that's not going to be the case. In this passage, Jesus is just beginning to open up what we might call the big surprise in the eyes of his followers. The Apostle Paul is going to later call it the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3. A mystery that's actually been hidden in plain sight to previous generations of God's people, but it's now being made known. And the big surprise is that the gospel isn't just for Israel. It isn't just so that God's people can keep making disciples out of their children, out of their communities, out of their neighborhoods, but that Jesus intends His good news to go global. For he has citizens that are waiting for him to come and wake them up like Aslan breathing on the white witch's statues. And these citizens, they live in every nation and place. And to accomplish Jesus' kingdom vision, he first calls us. And so this is the good news of Jesus Christ recorded for us by Luke, the missionary doctor And it is a good news that Jesus calls us to proclaim in every nation. A good news that Jesus calls us to take great risks for. And a good news that gives us great joy with the caller himself. We find it in Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 20. It's also on page 6 of your bulletin. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others... And sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, 
the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to the heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our Father, we do come again this morning asking that you give light to our hearts, to see the light of your word. Give light to our hearts that we may love your word. Give light to our hearts that we may not just love this message that we hear, but that we would love the one who wrote it, that we would love the one who spoke it, that we would love the one that this is all about, that we would hear his call to a deeper love of him, because we see with greater clarity the love with which you, Father, have shown us by giving us your Son. Do this for us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid and you wanted a cup of hot chocolate, you did it yourself because you wanted it done right. And you didn't pour yourself some milk in a mug and then mix in some kind of gross brown syrup that you just took from the fridge and then just pop it in the microwave for a couple minutes. That's how the pagans drink their chocolate milk and it ain't right. No, you first heated the milk in a saucepan over open flame and you mixed in a few drops of vanilla extract and a few heaping spoonfuls of real ground cocoa like Jesus used to do before adding the sugar and then stirring it in. I never had a cup that I regretted. But every once in a while, upon taking a gulp, you would realize after it was already too late that a clump of undissolved cocoa powder had made its way to your palate. And then the bitterness would instantly hit. Bitter cocoa, quickly mixing in 
with this sweet milk. And this is the picture that comes to my mind when I hear the phrase, bittersweet. It's a phrase that my family has been using a lot lately, and a phrase that we've been hearing from others as we discuss our family's recent call to serve the church in the country of Bulgaria. And as I said earlier, I don't want this sermon or any other to be about that specifically, but I also want to take just a second to thank so many of you for your encouragement, your enthusiasm, your support for us as we prepare. You truly are our family in Jesus. And it's no doubt that the disciples at this point in the story, they are tasting very, very much so the bittersweetness of Jesus' recent call to discipleship at the end of chapter 9, which Colin preached for us last week. The bitterness of knowing that following Jesus means holding your daily comforts, your home, even your family more loosely then you hold on to obedience to Christ. But then the sweetness that comes with knowing Christ Jesus, even in sufferings and loss, when things don't go the way you thought, the sweetness of knowing the power of His resurrection to change your loves, to comfort you in your loss, to preserve you through difficulties. The sweetness of intimacy with Christ that swallows up the bitterness of loss. And then Luke records a large section here in chapter 10 that's actually unique to his gospel account, not shared by Matthew or Mark or John. It's the call of the 72, or 70, which means that we should probably really quickly deal with the number problem. You might see a footnote in your Bible that there is a debate over whether the number is supposed to be 70 or the number is supposed to be 72. About half of the earliest and best copies that we have of the New Testament say 70. And you can probably guess what the other half of the equally good and trustworthy manuscripts say. 72. And so as a result, we don't know which number is most likely the one that Luke wrote. But honestly, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Because no matter which number it might be, the message and the reason for the number seems fairly clear. And we'll come to that in a second. But it's worth pointing out first that this mission is different than the one which marked the beginning of chapter 9. So we got a similar mission that Jesus sent the 12 apostles on at the beginning of 9. And now we have another one that looks kind of like it, but it's also different to mark the beginning of this chapter. In chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and then the accounts that quickly follow that and the rest of 9, they're pretty Jewish in flavor. You have Herod, the Jewish ruler who was a traitorous friend of Rome, wondering who Jesus is. You have the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets of leftovers, recalling Moses in the wilderness with the people and the feeding of the people with the manna from heaven, the 12 tribes of Israel being fed. You have Peter confessing Jesus as 
the Davidic son, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the greater David who was to come. And then you have the transfiguration of Jesus, where he is gleaming in white in glory, accompanied by Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. But by the time we get to chapter 10, a lot of teaching on discipleship has happened. And it's starting to become more and more clear that when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus has a lot more on his mind than simply bringing redemption and healing and a new society to the people of Israel. Already, he's rebuked the disciples for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans, the half-breeds, for rejecting him. He rebukes his disciples for having that attitude in chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Already he's challenged his disciples to begin considering the idea that Jesus might have many more followers out there than represented by the small band of the twelve in verses 49 and 50 of chapter 9. And so Jesus is challenging his disciples to stop navel-gazing, to stop being concerned with merely their own interests and even their own culture and society. When chapter 9 ends with Jesus saying, follow me without regard for ordinary concerns and follow me with a higher allegiance than you have for even your own family and follow me not looking back in the hopes of recreating better times, all of which Colin told us last week. Chapter 10 now gives us strong clues that following Jesus will mean more than simply wondering how those in the next neighborhood are doing. Following Jesus for some will mean more than taking a walk with him around the block. Jesus has more on his mind than bringing redemption to Israel. And that's why the number 72, or 70, is significant. In Genesis 10, which Jim was so bold enough to read a minute ago with all those difficult names, there are 70, or again, 72, it could go either way in Genesis 10 as well. There are 70-ish nations that came out of the flood. Theologically, Genesis 10 is very significant in showing that the new creation of mankind coming from the three sons of Noah after the great judgment of the flood is God's work. The number 70 is is 10 times 7, both of which are numbers of greatness and plenitude, an innumerable number of people. So God destroys the old world in judgment, but in Genesis 10, he's creating a new, in a sense. And here, in Luke 10, Jesus is sending out 70 preachers of the gospel who are other than the apostles. 70 others than the apostles. Symbolizing the beginning of a new spiritual creation in his coming kingdom. And the intent to take the gospel to all the nations, even after the ministry of the apostles is over. We're seeing here in Luke 10 that this scope of the call to spread the kingdom is global. And it always will be. 
But in this passage, Jesus also gives us much concerning the shape of the call. He doesn't just stop with showing us the scope, the extent, but he gives us the way. He gives us the manner in which we're to carry it out. And there are several guideposts that he gives us in these instructions, guideposts that tell us how we're to carry out the mission of spreading the kingdom globally. But guideposts that also warn us of going in the opposite direction. Beginning in verse 2, he tells us what the problem is. He describes the problem. The problem is that although the work is so massive, so few are ready or willing to take it on. He uses the metaphor of a field being ripe for harvest. It's a picture of a couple field hands who are kind of standing on the edge of a huge field, excuse me, field that is filled with grain. Wondering how in the world the job is going to be done. What's Jesus say? Well, you just need to work three times harder, ten times harder. And what you really need is some better technology. You need to work smarter, not harder. You need a combine instead of just a scythe. Maybe you need to hold a pep rally or a conference. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, go over to the master of the field. Go over to the Lord of the land and ask him. Ask him for more laborers. The very first guidepost in the shape of the call is dependence. Dependence. Dependence on God that is demonstrated in action. It's not just an attitude, it is action. And that action is prayer. Dependence. Now, does this mean that Jesus is against pep rallies? No, probably not. I'm against pep rallies, but Jesus is probably more gracious about it than I am. Is he against conferences, training? No. Is he against technology? Not necessarily. But what Jesus is against is independence and self-sufficiency. No true disciple of his has ever received so much training or become so skillful. No disciple has ever made so much money or built such a big house. No disciple has become so sanctified, so mature, that Jesus finally goes, Whoa, you're just too big a deal now. You're just too big to fail. I I can't possibly think of how to give you life circumstances or mission parameters that could challenge you or cause you to depend on the Father. Instead, as we have found throughout these last several chapters in Luke's gospel, Jesus, he's committed to doing the opposite. He has his disciples sailing through storms on a rickety boat. Facing armies of demons at night. Being told to feed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread. And all these things continue to draw the disciples 
to dependence. Pray and ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. But verse 2 gives us another signpost, another contour to the shape of this call. It tells us that strategy is good and okay and should be involved. We are meant to respond to the idea that the fields are ready but have so few laborers with dependence, but we're also meant to respond using our minds. We're meant to look at those parts of the field which have fewer workers and to think, you know, that part over there, it's being neglected. It's overgrown. That part over there of the field, the fruit is rotting because no one is over there to collect it. We're supposed to be strategic when we think about the work of spreading the kingdom globally. And a significant factor in driving our strategy should be the proportion of need. Where's the need? And this rebukes our default love of comfort and letting what's most comfortable determine our strategy instead of proportion of need determining our strategy. Verse 3 gives us the signpost of risk. Lambs sent out in the midst of wolves. Number one, it means that Christianity should never, ever, 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 ever be a faith of coercion. We don't coerce or threaten people into the faith. We're not the wolves in this verse. And neither is Jesus. But it does mean risk. Risk of harm. Well, sure, there's always risk of harm involved. But maybe an even tougher pill for us to swallow, a tougher pill for me to swallow, risk of failure. Risk of defeat. This verse rebukes as well our perfectionism. So often an obsession with calculation, an obsession with doing the ministry right is the arch enemy of obedience because our obsession with doing it right is hardly ever about the kingdom in the first place. It's about avoiding failure. It's about avoiding uncomfortable risk. It's about keeping our noses clean. It's about not offending others so that we can protect ourselves. Obsession with doing ministry right, obsession with doing it right, is often a very clever and attractive disguise for our sin that would rather just not obey at all. There's risk involved. Risk of failure, not just risk of getting hurt. But when we go forward with a convinced, a persuaded passion to trust Him rather than our own resources, you can be promised that the ride will be harrowing for sure, but it will be fruitful. And that's what He cares most about. And all this plays out in the book of Acts, the next book that Luke's going to write. I mean, the disciples are carried along. Very rarely do they really look like they know what they're doing. 
Very rarely does it look like there's no risk involved, not just for their own safety, but even for their own success. They're doing ministry in the book of Acts out of trust and the power of the Spirit that's come upon them, and they're walking a knife's edge of failure on a regular basis. And so Jesus gives us, verse 4, the shape, the guidepost of urgency. Jesus doesn't want these sent out ones to be encumbered with extra things to carry, extra sandals, extra bags. Why? Because these things slow you down. He doesn't want them taking valuable time to go through the lengthy process of Middle Eastern greeting customs when passing people on the road. And again, the point is to not let social customs, niceties, pleasantries, and maintaining one's social standing stand in the way of urgency. The days are evil, but they're also short. Jesus remembers the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, reminding us that our lives are like vapor. That we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. The days are short. And the older you are, the more you know this to be true. Urgency. Verses 5 through 11 give us a picture of living in this shape of the call that Jesus has described. Dependence on God to provide for them as they go from house to house, place town to town. Being strategic in terms of not staying too long, especially in a place that has rejected the message of Christ. A willingness to risk rejection. But we also get more from Jesus in these verses, 5 through 11, too. Notice the style of ministry. It's very personal, isn't it? It's relational. It's clear that this passage is not just giving like a mission statement to the work of preachers or pastors or ivory tower theologians, all of whom have their place in the work of the church. But this passage is describing kingdom work that we're all enabled to do and called to do. It's other than the 12 apostles or the 70. Relationships. Friendships, eating with people, hanging out, getting personal with people, and talking about Jesus with them. It's also holistic ministry. Jesus doesn't just send us to proclaim the hope of Christ, but to also show and demonstrate his love. The missionaries in this passage were to heal the sick in verse 9, and then tell others that the kingdom of God had come. It's not evangelism instead of mercy ministry, which is what you get with a lot of fundamentalism. And it's not mercy ministry instead of evangelism, which is what you get with a lot of liberalism. 
It's always been mercy ministry giving credence and authenticity to evangelism. They go together. And the final shape Jesus gives to this call is the shape of extreme importance. Especially for those who will receive these sent out ones. It's a striking series of statements in verses 12 through 15. Jesus says that it's going to be better for such wicked Old Testament cities like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon than for the towns around him which were rejecting him. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Sodom, the sign of the most extreme sexual deviance in the Old Testament, and Tyre and Sidon, symbols of unbridled greed and dehumanization as both cities were known as marketplaces for human slavery to the whole Mediterranean world. And yet because of the greatness of revelation being offered to the cities around Jesus, their judgment would be greater for rejecting it. The message of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do, it's not just a message. It's not just information download. It's a message attached to a door. It's a message attached to an introduction. A message connected to a relationship with a living, breathing person. And when the message is rejected and it is scorned, it's not just an unfortunate denial of good advice. It's not just a different interpretation of the data evidence. It's telling the Son of God that he can go to hell. That's how Jesus sees it. And not just him, but his father too. It's telling the one who loves you most, thanks, but I got it. No thanks. And verse 16 makes plain a rejection of those called to spread the kingdom, which is all of us, is a rejection of the caller himself. And that's who this passage is really about. This passage should not be used by anyone to stand in front of a church or any other gathering and say, Jesus wants all of you to go to Africa. That's not the point at all. And in fact, neither can any other passage of Scripture be used to say that. But this passage and many others like it is saying, it is saying, Jesus is going to Africa. He's going to Africa. And he's going to South America. And he's going to Asia. And he plans to take some of you with him. It is saying that. Another way to say it is, neither this passage nor any other can be used to say that Christ is calling every Christian to leave for a distant shore. It just doesn't square with so much of what we read in so many other clear passages in Scripture. But this passage and others like it is telling, that we all, telling us that we all have a responsibility to be globally minded Christians. Because first and foremost, the caller, 
The one who calls us is a global shepherd. He is jealous for his sheep in every place. And he wants his sheep in every place to share his jealousy. In fact, you and I sharing the heart of the shepherd himself, it's at the center of this entire call. And relationship with the shepherd is at the center of sharing his heart. This is Luke's point in verses 17 through 20. 72 are returning from their mission. They're giving an excited report of how demons were subject to them because of Jesus' authority. And Jesus' response is surprising. He acknowledges the greatness and wonder of what they had experienced. He acknowledges that something deeply theological, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, actually, is taking place. That these disciples were getting a taste of what it was like to step on demonic heads. Just as God promised that the seed of the woman would once again tread on the head of the serpent, so these missionaries were getting a taste of that in their ministry. God was allowing his kingdom to be fruitful, to multiply by bringing the nations to faith, by treading on the head of serpents and dismantling systems of demonic control. But what makes Jesus' statement so surprising is that even though the oldest of prophecies is beginning to be fulfilled, he tells them to rejoice, to take greater delight in something else. The original Greek of verse 20 says that they are to keep on rejoicing. They are to continually return again and again constantly to something fully completed in the past, yet enduring for all eternity, that their names have been written by God in his book of life. While Satan is being cast down from heaven, falling from heaven like lightning, the disciples are to rejoice in finding their names on the census rolls. Their names are there. They are known personally, by name, individually, by their shepherd who has given them his life, Because of the Father's great love. And it's this relationship, this fellowship with the shepherd that gives these disciples a willingness to heed the call. It is this fellowship and oneness with the shepherd that gives them peace and even boldness to go out into a world populated by wolves. 5th century church father by the name of Cyril, who's a bishop of Alexandria. He wrote about this passage from Luke. He said, How then does Christ command his servants, who are innocent men and sheep, to seek the company of wolves and to go to them of their own will? 
Is not the danger apparent? Are they not set up as ready prey for their attacks? How can a sheep prevail over a wolf? How can one so peaceful conquer the savageness of beasts of prey? Yes, Jesus says, for they all have me as their shepherd. Small and great, people and princes, teachers and students, I will be with you, I will help you and deliver you from all evil. I will tame the savage beasts. I will change wolves into sheep. And I will make the persecutors become the helpers of the persecuted. I will make those who wrong my ministers to be sharers in their pious designs. I will make and I will unmake all things and nothing can resist my will. This is the power. And this is the great love of the one who calls us. It is our joy to know him. And it is our joy to follow him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us a renewed joy, a renewed joy at being called, a renewed joy at being called out of our darkness and out of our sin. A renewed joy at knowing that our names are written before you in heaven, one by one, individually. You know us by name. You know the hairs of our head individually. Because of Jesus. Because the great shepherd suffered at the hands of the wolves himself and rose again to watch them scatter and flee. And he is our shepherd. Father, give us a renewed joy, a renewed faith in him. Give us a renewed boldness to receive and accept this call where we are, regardless of where you call us to go, across the street or across an ocean. It doesn't matter. You've given us the mission to proclaim your Son where you have placed us. Give us joy and fellowship with him that we can have joy in this work and in this calling. A joy that perseveres through the difficulties and the struggles. Do these things for us, Father, out of your love through Jesus and by the Spirit. Amen.